Welcome to the Ignite Physio Podcast. This podcast inspires physiotherapists and other health professionals to continue learning and growing in their practice and career. And we explore professional issues with a fresh lens and delve into topics that help to expand our capacity for growth. This is episode number 31, and I'm Andrew. And I'm Maxie. So today we're going to be talking about chronic pain, and we're continuing the conversation and our theme around chronic pain. And we have three guests with us today. And I'd like to introduce you to Jeff Bostick, Murray Kwalsik, and Janet Hawley. Jeff is a, an associate professor in the PT department at the University of Alberta, and Murray is a physiotherapist working at Lifemark in Edmonton. And Janet is a physiotherapist and clinical specialist in pain sciences from Ottawa. All three were part of the working group for the Chronic Pain Toolkit that was recently published by Physiotherapy Alberta. Jeff, Murray, and Janet, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So now, the, Andrew just gave a, a, a pretty high-level introduction of, uh, of three, the three of you who have a lot of experience and knowledge um, in the chronic pain world. And um, I guess we'd like to know if, you know, there's anything you'd like the listeners to know about you right now, what's sort of floating your boat um, in terms of clinical practice or, or pain science ed, or, or actually what's even exciting you in the world of, of pain right now? Uh, well, I guess I'll go first. Um, really enjoy kind of spending a lot of time with patients, correcting a lot of the misbeliefs they have about how kind of broken, how damaged their body is and kind of showing them that yes, pain definitely hurts, but they can still be so engaged in life and get back into activities that they enjoy. So that always lights me up when they get, get back into those things they've kind of had taken away from them. And uh, I'll, I'll take the what floats your boat these days. Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoy working with some of my military patients who um, in some capacities are some of the most challenging because I'm dealing with persistent pain, but I'm also dealing with PTSD. Um, I have some civilian patients the same way. And as much as those patients are incredibly challenging and have many barriers to progress, um, when we make change, it's incredibly rewarding. And uh, this is Jeff. Um, I think what I think is interesting, I've been interested in pain education for a long time, but it's only been, say, the past couple of years where there actually is a decent amount of literature in the area on on how to do it well. And I think pain education is, is turning into um, a discrete education um intervention rather than something that is nebulous and um, only done well by the likes of the Janet Hollies in the world. I think it's becoming more accessible uh, for physios to do well. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, so yeah, you guys are definitely coming all from different perspectives, both clinical and the research side of things. So I think this is going to be a really uh, interesting conversation as we delve into this topic. You know, I, I know the uh, last couple episodes, we, we touched on some, uh, some great topics within chronic pain management. And today we wanted to dig a little deeper in terms of some of the nitty gritty on pain science education and treatment. What we'd like to explore first is what really is pain science education from your perspectives? And I know it's a, a buzzword that often can be used, you know, quite frequently. And I think that there's going to be listeners who are wondering, well, what does it really mean when we actually are in front of a patient in the clinic? Uh, this is Jeff uh, talking again. The way I think of it as there's two ways to think of it in my view. One is the sort of tacit discussions that happen without us really realizing that we're providing education. So, you know, the reassurance on remaining active and that kind of thing. Um, and then there's a more uh, formal way of doing it 
um, that is more focused on helping people understand the neuroscience of pain. And the way I think about this is um, trying to give people a different way of thinking about their pain that is less threatening. So most people think about pain as a sign of tissue damage. And if that's your belief, then it makes it really hard to move and exercise despite pain. Um, so the pain neuroscience is a way to give people a different way of understanding pain, which actually is more theoretically and, um, I guess, um, well, theoretically accurate compared to the older way of thinking about things and should make pain less threatening. And in this process also that then, um, whether you like it or not, opens up discussion about uh, psychological factors and social factors that influence pain. So um, I think it's a nice springboard into biopsychosocialism, which um, I know a lot of physios aren't super comfortable talking about, but people seem okay with pain, pain education. So it's kind of a, without even knowing it, you're going to get into the psychological aspects of, of pain, which is good. I say as well, yeah, within, exactly, as you get them, the reassurance, get them the fear, then they're able to get back into, ultimately, just the more activity, get back engaged in life as well, too. So all those things tying together for that, that thing that's been held back from them. And as Jeff said, it is a nice opening to get into some of the psychosocial stuff that we don't normally think is part of our scope, um, to really explore beliefs that might be holding them back um, and other barriers that are holding them back. Um, and it sort of opens the door to a nice frank discussion um, where they start to feel validated for their ex experience and start to um, develop that trusting relationship with you so that they can start to share some of their thoughts and ideas that they may be a little reticent of sharing because in the past somebody may have made fun of them about it or even they think it's a bit of a crazy idea. Um, so they don't really want to put it on the table. So it is a good starting point to really develop that great treatment plan to move this person back to a better quality of life and better engagement in life. So this is Maxie. Now, I mean, so we're saying, what is pain educate? What what is pain science education? So we started off with Jeff started off with the the idea that it's a more theoretically and empirically grounded, um, you know, type of education, um, and that it involves the neuroscience of pain. So a lot of physios are going to be going, yeah, okay, neuroscience, it's the body, it's great. And then, then, then you said, well, it opens up the door whether you like it or not. So is, is the psycho and the social an, a component of pain science education? Or can you do pain science education without addressing the psycho and the social? I think it depends on your patient. Mm -hmm. You're not necessarily going to give the Cadillac model of PNA to every patient because not every patient needs it. Um, some patients just may need a very simple discussion of what is going on. I can think of somebody I treated that worked in a grocery store and um, bright lady, but limited education, didn't know much about her body. And when you started just to talk about how pain is created, 
um, and, you know, in a very simplistic form about how messages are coming up from the periphery, but it doesn't necessarily mean her tissue was damaged. All of a sudden she was like, so there's nothing broken. Uh, no, there's nothing broken anymore. And she was off and running. Like that was a 10 minute conversation. So you don't need the huge Cadillac for somebody like that. But then if you take one of my soldiers who's been overseas in Afghanistan and has a lot on his plate, yeah, you probably have to go a little bit more detailed. And the whole whole biopsychosocial model starts to evolve into your education session over time, not all in one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, gonna, I was just going to say, so now, the, the timeline <laughs> for the Cadillac. Um, and I would... I would, um, I agree with Janet, but I would also say that, um, that I, I don't think you can separate the psychosocial stuff just because I would, I view it as a, as a broader construct than just talking about, um, beliefs and thoughts. If you go visit someone like Janet, who's a clinical specialist and all of this pain stuff is now just so easy for her. And these conversations are very easy for her. Um, the The patients, I think, pick up on her, would pick up on her um, skill, whereas someone who's maybe new to it um, might be a little bit um, skeptical with some of those early messages. And that person might actually have to, to go uh, bring out the Cadillac, um, even if a... Uh, mountain bike is is appropriate uh, just because everyone has got different levels of of experience and 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 skill with it so the consequences of n talking about psychosocial aspects of pain for someone who doesn't need it is far less than the consequences of ignoring that for someone who does need it good point jeff i i would have to agree with that yeah, I just going to say probably a big stereotype, I think, of pain education, too, is that it's it's only for chronic pain patients, and that's it. But I think a lot of it still applies to the more acute issues, which can absolutely can develop into chronic pain. And definitely every patient will have a more dominant feature, perhaps, of psychosocial, and some will have a less feature. And for that, you'll, it kind of determines yeah, how deep into it you get into and how much um, you go down that rabbit hole. Well, not even rabbit hole, because that's, again, everybody's kind of, that plays a piece into their experience. We all have a suitcase. <laughs> Could you expand on that, uh, Janet? Would uh, unpack that a little bit for me? Unpack the suitcase. So th that's that's one of the examples I do when I start talking about um, psychosocial stuff with my patients. I start saying the context of your life, your past and your present, affects your output of pain, and that we all carry a suitcase because nobody gets through life without things happening to them. Um, some positive, some negative, but we all have baggage. Some it's an overnight bag, some have a steamer trunk. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to start considering how that suitcase is affecting their pain today. Um, and it's not like psychotherapy, it's just getting them to reflect on some of the drivers of their pain and looking for options of things that they might be able to start to change and behaviors they can change and thoughts they can change um, by unpacking that suitcase. And sometimes the suitcase is huge and it's complicated and that's when we decide that we need a partner on the team to help with this, that we need a good psychologist or we need a good social worker to help unpack that suitcase. 
So you're so in essence by sharing that with the patient, you're you're prepping them in a little bit of a you know in some ways in terms of recognizing that this may not be as simple as you know would be led to believe, or this might be a little bit of a longer process. Is that is that part of the reason you share that? Yeah. By putting that on the table, it gets them to start to reflect that, yeah, a lot of stuff has happened to them in their life and that, yeah, maybe next week they're not going to be doing everything they want to be doing, that this is going to be a slow process um, and that they'll have to be patient and kind to themselves as they go through the process of recovering. Well, that's, that's great. I, I, like, I love that analogy. That's a good one. Um, what would you guys say would make up the key attributes of, of pain science education? Yeah, key attributes are like core components. Yeah. Like what are like a core like, messages. Like these are the yeah. core things. Like if you're gonna do a pain science education session, these are the things that are a must. I, I would say for me and like you can read the the Explain Pain Supercharged book now outlines I don't know, I think there's nine or ten key concepts, but for me the biggest ones are um, trying to change the belief that pain is a sign of tissue damage and then the acknowledgement, acknowledgement that um, psychological distress, um, whether it be situational or, or not, and thoughts and beliefs, the emotional side, are as relevant to pain as a inflamed periosteum somewhere. Mm-hmm. So for me, those are the two big ones, I would say. And... I will add a third that um, a key message is validation that their pain is real, that it's physiologically real. So where Jeff started with going through the actual neurophysiological piece of pain and explaining it to them, but, but really making sure that they get that concept that this is tied up in their neurophysiology and that I as a clinician believe them when they say they can't sleep all night, or I believe them when they say they can't go to work or they can only do half their job. Um, and that there is a justifiable reason for their pain output being that turned up, but then adding the secondary piece that the hope that it can be turned down. Yeah. Because I can, you know, I can say, I can see how like, so Janet, when you're saying, you know, you're talking about the suitcase and there may be some people who, like, you know, that rubs them, right? So they, they pull back a little bit and go, wait, hold on a second. Are you saying, like, you know, this is all about the, it's in the, my head. the pain in my head? And we, we've all, we, as clinicians, we've heard that, yes. right? And, and mm-hmm. you know, so I, I find it, like, um, really, I know it seems simple that you would do, that you would reaffirm that with people, that there's a physiological process. However... It seems exceptionally important, I would think, to really have, like, connect with them on that, that they they actually believe, they believe that their pain is a physiological process that maybe isn't nociceptive driven, right? But also that you believe that and know that to be true. Yeah, because I say the more professionals they see that maybe can't fix their pain, so I think they're kind of, the message may come that they're making it up. They probably then just put more straps around that suitcase. They're not. They're not as willing or not as able to open it up and start unpacking it as well. Mm-hmm. Well, they stop to. They start to lose trust in the health professions. Okay, so here's a here's a here's a question. Since here at Ignite Physio, mm-hmm. <laughs> on the podcast, we're all about as well reflective and reflexive practice. Um, 
That, that now, because I think it's a journey for physical therapists, for therapists as well, to believe that it's a physiological, actual physiological process, right? Like, can you, can you guys speak to that just a, just a little bit, I guess, on your own sort of kind of journey of actually, like, did it just, did it, did you just go, yeah, I believe that, that that's true? Or did you struggle with or continue at times maybe get triggered in a clinical situation where you struggle with that? Well, it was easy for me because I had a three-year history of persistent pain. And I remember early in my career, because this happened to me early in my career with a radiculopathy that decided to hang around. And I know what was in my suitcase that centralized that at the time. Um, And I remember waking up one morning and feeling what felt like ants walking up the back of my neck. And I remember going, wow, it does feel like bugs. Those patients are nuts. <laughs> and then I went, wow, you're a horrible therapist <laughs> because you thought that. <laughs> like two wows in quick succession of, oh, my God, I have all these people that I feel like, oh, this apology to because that might have been on my face. Like I never said it, but it might have been on my face. Um, so, but you know, it would be nice if you don't have to live it to get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if I'm honest, I, there's always a small part of me is like, well, maybe I'm missing something where there is a relatively easy remedy. Um, but I don't know. I, I think of all the people who come into clinic who have been, been through, seen every single healthcare provider been all through all kinds of imaging and um who are just starving for answers and um i just think i mean this is the only way like this is the only way to make sense of their pain and i mean the trouble with this kind of stuff is you have to take a bit of a leap of faith because it's not i mean there is isolated studies here and there that challenge our previous way of doing things, but this isn't a model that's really entirely empirically defensible. Um, So there is a bit of a faith element to it. And I just think it's normal to have those questions, you know, that maybe there is something fixable or maybe that uh, MRI change is actually really driving things. But, um, I think the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. So I think you can have a a disc herniation on MRI. Hey, I just wanted to have a quick pause to introduce you to today's podcast sponsor, Soul. They're off-the-shelf moldable insoles, and it's the brand of insoles that I recommend to my patients and have for years. The reason I recommend them is that they're heat moldable by the patient, they've got a great arch support, and they come with options to help with different foot issues. It's really easy for customers to order, and when you refer them to Soul, they get free shipping and 10% off. Make sure to check them out at yoursoul.com forward slash health dash professionals. That's Y-O-U-R-S-O-L-E dot com forward slash health dash professionals. All right, back to the show. And that doesn't mean that how pain is processed is is any different. It's just one. It's one piece of the puzzle. 
And I totally agree that you have to make sure that you are managing potentially a mixed patient of nociceptive and centrally sensitized patient. But I, I think we also have to cause, call a spade a spade that healthcare professionals do stigmatize these patients at times, and physios do it too. Um, and there was a great study done by Werner in 2003 that um, was looking at what patients reported, and they did report that they felt stigmatized by their family, their friends, and other healthcare providers, um, and that they felt that they needed to act in, in a, a correct manner when they were engaging with the healthcare community, that they, they with some people needed to be assertive and others they needed to be more surrendering, um, that they had to appear like they had pain in order to be believed, um, even though they might not have had a lot of pain in the moment. So I think we have to be reflective of ourselves as clinicians too and what we project to our patients because um, they're not missing it. Yeah, well, especially somebody coming in that's vigilant already, mm-hmm. um, you know, physically, physiologically and psychologically, emotionally vigilant. Um, they're looking for any sign of threat, and you could be that threat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're going to pick it up <laughs> tacitly. I guess kind of getting in, because coming out as a new grad is definitely more susceptible to kind of seeing physios on the internet or social media, how just seem to be able to just cure and fix everything. And so it's definitely always kind of, the clinic I work in, it's, it's focused a lot around chronic pain. So seeing these patients, like, why the heck can I fix them? Why can't I kind of do that as well? Um, but yeah, definitely seeing them, since it is more publicly funded, they don't seem to have the same, um, I guess you could kind of argue, incentives of having to, some people would say, kind of fake their pain. And so I think I just had a natural tendency to already kind of believe them and want to kind of go down that road. Um, but uh yeah, it is, it is always tricky to not always just second guess yourself that, yeah, we're not kind of going down the wrong way. Yeah. And I think, I know like from, from my clinical experiences where, you know, you have some patients that are, you know, they, they've been in, in a, you know, MVA or whatever, and, and they are so wound up and, uh, you know, you do all your screening and it, and it is sometimes hard to, uh, yeah, to know, like, I mean, I would say, to be honest, sometimes you almost question, like, is this pain real? Because it seems so disproportionate to the injury right and and it's not even it hasn't even gone through sort of that into that chronic stage and i and i i know for myself that i i have to say take a step back and say okay you know what this is real for them and this is real pain and uh but sometimes it it can it can feel a little bit unsettling i know for myself as a therapist to say okay how do i how do i navigate this right like how do i how do i reassure them when i'm i feel like there's some question marks I find that sometimes it can be a little bit uh, unsettling working through that. Where for those patients that really, where they they ha- they have such a high level of perceived threat and 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 their their nervous system is so wound up. I think what we have to remember with those acute patients, though, that central sensitization doesn't take six months. It can only take hours for some people, and. Um, it's okay to have a mixed patient where when you assess them, you actually say, hey, this car accident did cause tissue damage, but I've got this other layer. And I think to start having that discussion with your patients right out of the gate that, yeah, they've got tissue stuff, there's no question. But then there's this other piece that is different and it's a different type of pain and it's more intense. And that if we want to get them moving to their goals, and what they've told us where they want to be from a participation viewpoint, then 
we need to start managing that now, not a year from now when the insurance company sends them to a pain clinic because they didn't get better. Um, but really start looking at the person in front of us and how they present rather than just with the diagnostic imaging and our clinical assessments telling us from a tissue viewpoint, we, we, we can do better. We can handle more than one thing on our plate. Um, and I think we can engage our patients uh, to understand that there's more than one thing going on. And as Jeff says, now that, and I agree with them, now that there's so many more tools out there and that the information is becoming more at the hands of the individual therapist up in Yellowknife, et cetera, mm. it doesn't need to be a clinical pain specialist. There are great physios across Canada working in entry level, in, in private clinics and on acute orthopedic wards who can use these tools right out of the gate with these people and, and start making change today, not a year from now when they're not getting better. I'm always shocked about what people go through. Like I've, I've got a pretty, I haven't been exposed to much in my life, but um, sometimes when you start talking to people, it's unbelievable what they go through and what they shoulder on their own. And I think our people are people we work with, the people we work with are more resilient then we might give them credit for. They just need some guidance and help helping to identify um, the factors that are influencing their pain. And identifying the stuff that they've learned in the past through those hard times that they can use to get through this episode. Yeah. Because they, they do have skills they've already learned. It's just teasing them out and showing how they can use that. One of the things that we wanted to chat about, and I know, Jeff, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, was around, you know, the evidence for the effectiveness of, of pain science education. And I was wondering if, you know, want to touch on that, uh, you know, what you found and what, what's, what the research is showing us. Well, the research is a bit hard to interpret because lots of the people who are doing the research are also the people who are selling products on pain education. So it'd be kind of like... Andrew doing a study on um, on the benefits of a community of practice and saying, oh, by the way, it, it's really great and here's my, here's my website. So first of all, like almost any intervention that's studied in, in, we'll just use back pain for example, but it's the same for other areas, has like a modest benefit. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you do, there always seems to be some type of benefit. And so I think as a consumer of the literature, that's really frustrating to see. And so when you look at the literature on explain pain, it's very similar. There are clinically important improvements in pain and disability that are maintained long-term. And that's right from a Mosley and Butler systematic review who actually did at least get an independent person to analyze their data. So acknowledging that they had a conflict of interest. Um, so for me, there, there's that level of evidence that's there, but I think the other thing is that, um, that we can't forget is there's a whole theory behind it that really lines up well with the broader literature. So that's another plus in the column. And there's this also, this, uh, crazy woman from Alberta who's done some work on therapeutic relationship and... This explained pain also aligns with that 
work. So I think there's a few lines of converging um, evidence to suggest that it's a, it's a good thing to do, to do. And like what Murray and Janet have both said, um, the, the trick now, I guess the next step now is trying to understand um, more clearly who should um, be given this intervention and whether the Cadillac version is needed or the Hyundai version is needed um, would be the next step. So I, you know, there's, there's definitely enough where I feel confident in teaching it to physio students in that, you know, there's, there's a good um, theoretical and empirical evidence base behind it. Jeff, I like the cut of your jib. <laughs> just, just in uh, in in the, the idea of all these converge because I think sometimes we think of research in silos or we think of of these constructs in silos and um, I think we have to just and this is my uh, like a soapbox just as as researchers um, certainly start thinking bigger and across domains um, and and actually trying to really acknowledge linkages like that. Um, now, second, though, I, and I'm going to, as a researcher, I should never do this, right? But I remember some sort of study that I kind of remember, um, and it was, a, it, it had to do with, with actually teaching, um, teaching pain science education to students, and, um, and having the students, I believe the findings were that they, it changed, they did have some change in belief, but it really didn't change practice once they once they they got into practice and I, I'm not saying that you should know the study that I'm talking about because obviously I'm being very vague but and Murray you could probably speak to this too though um, the idea of of pain science education if it if it's not necessarily better than anything else how how and or why should it be a part of every physio's sort of toolbox, right? If it's no better than anything else. Well, just before Marie answer that, I, I, there hasn't been a ton of head-to-head -head studies, though. Of, okay. You know, so I don't know if, if you can say that, but probably, yeah, it's, 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 gonna, it, it's likely to be a little bit better than other things. But it's also harder to do in terms of time and that sort of thing. Sorry, Marie. No, that's great. Well, it's, I think it's any treatment. We, in reality, in real life, we don't do anything in just isolation. You know, we don't only do hands-on stuff. We don't only do kind of bending touch your toes. And so I imagine with pain education, we don't only talk and then that's it itself. And so um, I think definitely seen a lot of physios that go through the courses, get all the theoretical about it. Yeah, I totally get it. But don't necessarily always then connect the dots of, okay, well, then how can I now actually apply this to what I'm actually doing with my patients? Um, so then whether it's incorporated if they say they're doing modalities, okay, can I do that fit in with there? Or as they're doing exercises, can, now, can I tie this in with those exercises as this is what we talked about now, let's show it and let's prove it that that is the case itself, that we can change your pain and it isn't as structural as you necessarily think it may be as well. And now I'm going to be a little devil's advocate too, if I'm going to tag team on what Maxie's saying, although I agree totally with what Murray said and that's pretty much how I do things. But if we're going to be a real devil's advocate and say, okay, maybe it's not better than anything else, which my gut is if they do some decent studies, hopefully it will show otherwise. Um, but that's just my own personal biases. 
Um, but if we're going to be a, a devil's advocate, if nothing else, it justifies to the payers and something you can chart and code the time you need to take to create a therapeutic relationship of trust and find out what the needs of your patients really are rather than, I read yesterday I should do three times eight of this particular exercise for low back pain, which may or may not be functionally useful to what that patient needs to do in their life. So it gives you some time to talk and listen and really understand your patient because as you get into this, they start communicating backward, back to you things. So what I'm hearing, Janet, is we can't bill for therapeutic relationship building, but we can bill for pain. We can bill bill for education, right? And there's sort of yeah. like a there's there's that that element of it that um and I honestly I've never thought of it this way. This is great that that it that it, it's embedded within it, right? Like if if we're doing pain education, you know, um, well. Then that is a part that is that is naturally a part. It walks it, it, it walks in line with the therapeutic relationship development. Walks in line with that treatment, mm-hmm, yeah. quote unquote, quote, unquote that treatment. Mm-hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. I think P and E works, but let's say I am wrong. If nothing else, it creates that time zone to get a good relationship. Which then comes back to a lot of the treatments we think works for a certain reason we're starting to see that they work but for something totally and a completely different reason itself and perhaps yeah. education is another one of those perhaps there is the exact maybe it is more that therapeutic or maybe that's just another factor that feeds into it uh it's the joy of so many things isn't it <laughs> <laughs> more research is needed <laughs> i think the one thing though that uh you hear some people get stressed about the threat of technology and yeah you can go you can go online and pretty much get a diagnosis for anything. You can get a treatment plan for anything, but you can't go online and get reassurance and uh, kindness and empathy and um, and all of that. So I think this is this pain neuroscience education. I think is a, is in a way fancy talk for for just being. Uh, a good listener and being kind to people. Yeah, and I, just as you were talking, Jeff, I was I was thinking. So, are you saying that therapists who um, maybe use pain education as a primary lens for for how they approach the clinical interaction are maybe that de- helps develop empathy, or it helps develop those those sort of um, a more state states or traits with um with the therapist yeah i think even if you're not empathic um i think the process of 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 doing pain education it requires you to listen it requires you to ask people about how the impact of their pain has affected their relationship with their children or their spouse it requires all of that stuff that maybe for some people, isn't doesn't come naturally, and so when you ask people those questions, um, I can't. They can't help but feel like you care and that they're they're um, they've got an ally with in you, and um, they feel validated and supported and all of that. 
And so it's not to say that all our inter other our other interventions like exercise or manual therapy or whatever are not are are just bogus. But when you when you add that piece onto whatever specific effect there is that comes with those treatments, it just gets it just gets magnified. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's uh, great having you on the show today. Uh, now, if you've been enjoying the new show, I'd love for you to leave a review on uh, iTunes as this just helps uh, more people find out about the podcast and we'd love to, to get your feedback. And if you want to check out the show notes uh, from the podcast, just go to ignitephysio.ca forward slash podcasts. And if there's any topics that you want us to cover, just uh, shoot us an email at hello at ignitephysio.ca and we'll make sure to get back in touch with you and, and see what we can do there. So anyways, thanks for joining us on the show today. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.